Welcome to Indefinable Magic. Things to think about thanks to a TV show that began on a cold, wet night in November, several decades ago. It is written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. This week's meander, it's not cricket. Except, it is. Episode 1. Doctor Who and cricket. Both British institutions, both identified with a certain kind of eccentricity, both inspire intense devotion from fans who pour over its minutiae, whilst their appeal baffles and leaves others totally cold. And both have been forced to adapt and modernise in order to survive. Just as Doctor Who has a broad and eclectic range of storytelling styles, so no two games of cricket are necessarily the same. Variables like the pitch, the players, the format, the teams and sometimes just the presence or absence of a certain kind of alchemy can radically alter a particular get-together, making its iteration the previous week seem like something else altogether. Cricket rewards the patient or the obsessive. Sometimes whole passages of play can be padded non-events, but you never quite know if a small moment of charm will just happen. A commentator noticing a pigeon say, an umpire doing a funny dance, a frisson of fun or sportsmanship between two opposing players. Sometimes a cricket match will be like, say, Earthshock, fast and furious and dramatic right up until the end, where the climax explodes with victory and tragedy. Sometimes, like Four to Doomsday, it can be slow and frustrating and occasionally silly, yet charming and surprising and quirky, with joyful little bits popping up if you want to spot them, the odd, elegant shot here or amusing interaction there. And sometimes it'll be like Time Flight, a bit of a mess despite lots of talent being involved, cursed by bad luck and silly mistakes, but still kind of charming. Now the chances are that some of you listeners aren't cricketers at all, but stick with me. Don't let your experience put you silly mid off. This broadcast will try to remain accessible at all times. Now, explaining all of the rules of cricket would kill us all, so let's see if we can condense it into something digestible. Explaining the rules of cricket is a bit like when people ask you what you like about Doctor Who and you suddenly realise that the things you take for granted about the object of your affection aren't quite so easy to translate into other people ease. Cricket, like Doctor Who, is quite complicated. And words aren't really enough. Cricket has an indefinable magic, but telling you that doesn't help if you want to play it. So, cricket. For our American listeners, and let's be honest, for a lot of our British listeners too, is like baseball. But it's in much less of a hurry and has plenty of unnecessary complications and an abundance of daft words associated with it. Basically, you have two teams of 11. Both teams get to bat, both teams get to field. One team bats first, with two players at each end, each wielding a cricket bat, a flattened piece of wood which looks like someone has mated a baseball bat with an iron. 
The other team, for now, fields and bowls. The bowler delivers a ball to the batsman, who has to stop the ball hitting the wicket, three bits of wood behind him, with two other smaller bits of wood on top called bales, by hitting the ball with his bat, but without it being caught by one of the fielders. As the fielders chase the ball the batsman has hit, he, if he has time, runs from one wicket to the other. There is one at each end, his opposite number following suit and the two crossing over. Each runner has to make it back to the wicket, one at one end, one at the other, before the fielding side hit the wicket with the ball. If one of them doesn't, he is run out. Being out means you have to stop batting and be replaced by your next scheduled team member. This happens until you run out of players, i.e. once 10 of the 11-man team have been dismissed, because you need two batsmen in at one time. Other ways of being out include being bowled, the ball hits the wicket, or being caught, the ball goes into the hands of one of the fielding side if it's been hit and hasn't bounced. If the batsman hits the ball to the edge of the field, the boundary, he scores six if it doesn't bounce, four if it does, and he doesn't need to run in those instances. The fielding positions have odd names like gully, silly mid-off and third man, not the film. And the different types of bowling of the ball, depending on whether they bounce or the direction they move or how they spin from where they have bounced, also have odd names like a googly or a yorker or a bouncer, not the dog. The ball always has to be bowled over arm with the arm straight, no chucking. Oh, heck, I can hear your ears glazing over, and there are unanswered questions even in that. The problem is, to explain cricket simply is like describing Doctor Who as a TV programme about a person with a face. To capture its essence, you need a bit of detail. And yes, I did say batsman and he and all of that above, but cricket is also now played expertly by women as well. But I didn't want to say he, she every time, so forgive me. And also, by the way, explanation doesn't always help. Try explaining Hellbent, or The Mythmakers, or The Day of the Doctor, and see if you can do them justice or capture the experience of watching them, especially to someone who has never shown any interest in Doctor Who before. You may as well throw fish at a Lithuanian from the Middle Ages for all the sense you'll make. To get to the details, you probably have to say something out loud that is better experienced in situ. An exciting draw, yes, cricket sometimes ends in a draw, but it can be exciting, has to be experienced in the same way that having the end of Logopolis described to you is not the same as watching it. And there's a lot to cricket. And cricket fans differ like Doctor Who fans differ. There are the statisticians who remember facts and figures. There are those who like the human dramas and personal relationships. And there are those who note the subtle changes in the way that the game is played. Just as some Doctor Who fans remember production codes, whilst others make their own costumes, and some really sad kits can name every single actor from every single story without having to think too hard about it. <clears throat> now, cricket-wise, I am a fan, but... Actually, though I listen to the test matches and I know the names of the international players, I'm not 100% sure I could identify a googly or show you third man on a map of the cricket field. I'm like a Doctor Who fan who watches it, maybe buys the odd DVD, but doesn't have a single annual and couldn't tell you who Paul Bernard was. Yes, those people. Proper cricket fans probably hate the likes of me. 
but I know the names of the players from the past and I'm up to speed with the latest games, so I'm interested, but I'm not obsessed. But I know my version of obsession isn't the same as many other people's. I'd say I'm not a fan or an obsessive about Star Wars or Blake 7, but I can name most of the cast of both and I know my Gouda Prime from my Tatooine. But hey, that's my problem. So whilst I can't wax knowledgeably about when the laws of cricket changed or who captained the England side in, say, I don't know, 1972, I've read a few books on key moments in the game, the Bodyline series, for example, as bruising and controversial a period in the game's history as the 18-month hiatus was for Doctor Who. And I've enjoyed the autobiographies of some players. Skillful Australian opener and now coach Justin Langer actually mentions Doctor Who a couple of times, including the fact that Patrick Troughton, the second Doctor, was educated at Mill Hill, so, you know, not off-the-shelf stuff, which makes me think that Langer might be a closet fan, or at least a sympathetic traveller, which certainly made for a lovely, unexpected surprise as I huddled on a beach trying to gain comfort from my holiday reading rather than the uncooperative weather. And if you have an obsessive kind of a mind, there's so much to discover if you get into cricket. There's history, all sorts of statistics and facts and figures. As I say, I personally couldn't tell you who won what test when and or what Sir Garfield Sobers averages as a batsman across his career. But as a Doctor Who fan, I can definitely identify with those who huddle over scorebooks and digest stats and info. The BBC radio commentary describing the game, conjuring images for those who, for whatever reason, can't see it, has been the perfect gateway drug into the game for me. Just as many young whoers got their first taste of the show through the Target books, where, like radio, the pictures were frequently better, the cricket commentary on the BBC is, for some, as integral to the sport as the watching and playing of the game itself. The BBC's Test Match Special is a broadcasting legend. It has a rotating lineup of experts, mostly ex-players, describing what they can see for the listeners' denied pictures. It's probably the only sport that can sometimes be enjoyed more because you can't see it which it probably has in common with some of Doctor Who's missing episodes. And it really is magical radio, sometimes frustrating, sometimes annoying, but largely high-quality, well-informed, opinionated without being uncouth, and very, very charming and funny. And maybe a little old-fashioned, but hey, I watched The Chase yesterday whilst my other half watched I May Destroy You, so I'm apologising to no one for that. And Test Match Special is so loved that the listeners send the commentary team cakes. Cakes by the dozen. Cakes often described and devoured on air. I bet you don't get Auntie Mabel's lemon drizzle when you're yelling about the football or cheering on the basketball or whatever. As well as the commentators and summarisers who describe and discuss the action, the team also has a statistician. In my young days, a lugubrious bearded gentleman called Bill Frindle we couldn't see him, but his colleague, Henry Blofeld, yes, Blofeld, and there is a connection with James Bond, as Henry's father, Thomas, was at school with Ian Fleming, and so probably responsible for the name of 007's arch-nemesis. Henry Blofeld always called Bill Frindle the bearded wonder. Frindle has now departed to the great scoring room in the sky, and the statistician is now a former comedian colleague of mine, Andy Zaltzman. He doesn't have a beard. He is another geek making a profession of his passion, so I feel some kinship with him, and he's taken to it like a duck to water. 
Oh, a duck, by the way, is a score of naught in cricket. But in the last sentence, I meant just an actual duck. Well, a metaphorical duck. Uh, look, never mind. Uh, both Frindle and Zaltzman are funny in their own way, with brains capable of extrapolating numbers and making them interesting. And as I have said, the beauty of radio is, much like the most effective Doctor Who, what you can't see makes you conjure the images in your head, and that act of imagination makes the audience a partial contributor, an active engagee. Like Doctor Who, there's a certain Britishness about cricket. And I mean, of course, there isn't. It's played by the Aussies and the West Indies and is huge in India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka. But there's nothing more British than thinking something in international colours is thoroughly British. And that's my image of it. And my image of it and things of universal appeal are created by all of us in our own image, from gods downwards. And there's nothing wrong with that. Is that cricket is as English as fair play, cucumber sandwiches and a nagging sense of underachievement. It's not cricket, of course, means something which has been done in an unsporting manner, which is where fair play comes into it. And this spirit is invoked, ironically, of course, by Joseph C. in the Happiness Patrol before sending his victim to a candy slop death. Cricket can be framed within the classical imagery of a holy British institution, with its gentlemanly conduct, its tea in the afternoon, and its languid pace and eccentric purveyors. As with Doctor Who, a programme whose DNA has a mercurial Canadian, an intellectual British Asian and an Australian or two in the mix, the beautiful game has much foreign, in inverted commas, influence which has helped to shape it. For anyone of my generation, the powerful, terrifying fast bowlers of the 1980s West Indian team, the technical genius of the spin bowlers from India or Pakistan and the all-round mastery of the game of successive Australian teams has kept the mother country on its toes and sometimes shamed its performances. And I'm not saying this in a, oh, St George was Turkish, tiresome gotcha. I'm highlighting that it feels British to me, even though I know my knowledge of its history refutes that, because sometimes what something evokes to you doesn't care about facts. And that's OK. And whilst I'm no little Englander, the things I like about this silly country of mine certainly seem to be exhibited by both cricket and Doctor Who. An illustrious history which rewards with constant delving, and yes, sometimes reveals things we might not like to contemplate. Its own rather bizarre set of rules. The fascinating people involved in it throughout the years. An eccentricity and charm. Moments of great excitement. Some things and occasionally attitudes that make you cringe. And then there's the fact that cricket has been in Doctor Who itself and, well, it sort of fits. Cricket is first mentioned by name in Doctor Who by departing companion Ian, who lists the things he wants to do if he successfully gets back to London 1963 at the end of The Chase. See, I told you I was watching it yesterday. He says he wants to sit in a pub and drink a pint of beer again, walk in a park and watch a cricket match. He opines like a man heading out of lockdown. Cricket was then actually seen in the show on New Year's Day 1966 in The Daleks' Master Plan, Episode 8, Volcano. 
for an underestimated comedy interlude far funnier than a lot of what had gone on a week before in the episode that was supposed to be funny, the Christmas Day shoutathon, The Feast of Stephen, a deliberately light-hearted break from the story proper in order to provide more festively appropriate fare than genocidal Nazi pepper pots trying to destroy the universe. So, as 1966 viewers wiped away their cobwebs and their hangovers, whilst the adventure resumed, there was still clearly a residue of Christmas spirit on the typewriter keys, which whacked out a few more whimsical escapades. So, in between intergalactic bad guy Marvik Chen suavely planning to double-cross spiky alien dupe Trantis, and the TARDIS landing the Doctor and friends on the planet Tigus for some indecipherable stuff involving the meddling monk, the TARDIS lock and the Doctor's Ring, which makes cricket seem easy to follow by comparison, there's a brief interlude in a radio commentary booth, where a fruity but excitable English commentator, Trevor, played by Drathro off of Trial of a Time Lord, and a duller Australian counterpart, nicely deadpanned by Bruce Whiteman, take the arrival of the TARDIS during the last hour of play at a test match at the Oval between England and Australia in their commentating stride. It's a jolly scene, the commentators blithely observing the intrusion and commentating on what effect this random time machine will have on England's chances in the game, rather than being boggled by the scientific impossibility of a materialising police box. Unflappable they are, as any good commentator should be. An off-screen character, Ross, the Bill Frindle of Doctor Who, is beavering away through the record books to see if anything like this has happened before, whilst Trevor and Scott mark time, lamenting that this space-time incursion is a very bad break for England, who currently only have 45 minutes to score 78 runs, a tall order for the slower-paced game of the time. As it is, the TARDIS disappears, it only costs England two and a half of its 45 minutes, but we never do discover whether or not they won. In real life, England were playing Australia, but not at the Oval. In fact, in Melbourne on New Year's Day 1966, in a match that was drawn with England out of time to score the 277 needed to win in their final innings. The weather vane at the other London cricket ground, Lords, by the way, is called, and this is appropriate, Old Father Time. Well, in fact, it's just called Father Time, but people refer to it as Old Father Time. In fact, online, it's often written up as Old Father Time, open brackets, Lords, close brackets, Father Time Lords. Anyway, let's just say that the name of the weather vane is Old Father Time, but the character portrayed by the weather vane is just called Father Time. Or something. Anyway, in the Daleks' master plan, the whole atmosphere of cricket broadcasting is captured perfectly, and the two actors are spot on. The main controversy to be had in the whole interlude, though, is that the Doctor doesn't appear to know what cricket is. Yes, in just over a decade or so, he'll be wearing the uniform of the sport. Yet, when we cut to the TARDIS on New Year's Day 1966, his first incarnation displays his extraterrestrial distance from us with his ignorance of the cricket match that Trevor and Scott are describing. He's not even sure what's taking place is on Earth at all. This is an indication of just how much more alien the Doctor, who, let's not forget, 
in latter years has known about the likelihood of a Walford Christmas being a bad one, was back in the day. But that's not the worst thing about this interlude. It's one thing for an alien wanderer in the fourth dimension not to know what cricket is, but neither do Sarah and Stephen, his travelling companions, and they are from Earth, in the future. So, in the 24th slash 25th century, where Stephen is from, and the 40th century, Sarah's time, cricket is no longer a game played on the planet that invented it. It seems that the current attempts to reinvent the game with shorter forms and more exciting packaging are, in the Doctor Who universe, to no avail. If you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on Geoffrey Boycott's face forever. The Daleks master plan is rightly considered a doom-laden story with shock deaths and a tragic ending. But never mind the harrowing death and the ageing time winds and that. It's that revelation in episode 8 that cricket will one day be no more that is as sad as anything involving brigadier-flavoured fratricide, an airlock or a time destructor. And it's rather surprising that it's not until two Doctors later that Cricket gets so much as a mention in Doctor Who. He spends almost an entire incarnation exiled to 20th century Earth without once bothering to either nip to the Oval or flick on Test Match Special as he plays with his silicon rod in his lab. Never mind seeking out the famous blue planet of the Actaean Galaxy Doctor. You could pack a bottle of Chablis and some salmon sandwiches in Bessie and enjoy a charming day's play in the sun much closer to you than Metabilis 3 will ever be. You'd get all the tranquility you needed, not a tentacle or Jenny Laird's acting in sight. And the third Doctor would surely be a member of the MCC, the famous Marylebone Cricket Club, with its massive waiting list, special tie, old-fashioned traditions, women weren't accepted until 2018, and much hobnobbery. He'd name-drop WG Grace over a G&T and tell Joe to wait outside before you could say hi, score. If the third Doctor is a subscriber to Wisden, the regular cricket publication, then he keeps it quiet, because it isn't until Tom Baker's second story, The Ark in Space, that the Time Lord shows he has somewhere, since the Daleks' master plan, acquired a passion for the game. Perhaps that's what he does when he disappears in the middle of Robot. Never mind what the novelization of The Face of Evil says, he was actually on a training sabbatical, brushing up on his forward cover drive and hanging out with Harold Larwood. He has a cricket ball in his pocket in the Ark in Space, which Harry uses to try to knock out the ship's defence mechanism. The ball, alas, is organic, so ends up in toasted pieces after Harry has delivered his, it has to be said, less than convincing underarm throw, which actor Ian Martyr gamely tries to make authentic by rubbing the ball to give it a bit of a shine like a proper bowler would. The ensuing throw itself, though, is nothing like a professional's, and the shine is actually rendered meaningless by the manner of delivery. In the hand of fear, a couple of years later, the Doctor seems suitably immersed in his fantasy cricket to ignore an obvious, alarming-sounding siren in a dangerous workplace, a quarry, in order to turn his arm over, using a rock as a cricket ball and knocking over a nearby stone wicket. He's lucky to have a rock. Most of us off-duty cricketers usually have to mime bowling a ball and then 
cracking its back. It's the English gentleman's equivalent of air guitar. This fourth incarnation keeps his hand in, quite literally, clearly a hand at the end of a bowling arm, in the rebos operation, when commenting upon the Somerset accent adopted by intergalactic conman Garin, the Doctor muses that Garin could be a cricket scout for the county and that Somerset need a good leg spinner. That's a sort of bowler, everybody. This is the Doctor at his glibest, and I'm not sure we're supposed to take seriously whether or not the Doctor is talking about present-day Somerset, and when is present-day to a time-traveller anyway, and whether we're supposed to believe that cricket is still being played on Earth at the time that Garen is up to his contracts. Time is tricky, especially when Tom Baker's larking about and after a laugh. His Doctor, unlike Pertwee's, isn't rooted in one particular period for much of his era either, so when he says Somerset need a particular type of cricketer, which Somerset is he talking about, and when? Well, he's just being silly. And he's definitely being silly, and after a laugh throughout the horns of Nymon. So even when it looks like all is lost at the beginning of episode two, and he has to come up with a funky manoeuvre in order to stop the TARDIS from being destroyed, with him and K-9 in it, he makes a quip in the face of death about them being about to discover what it is like to be a cricket ball. And this gives him an idea. He spins the TARDIS so that when it is hit by the approaching asteroid, it deflects off at an angle rather than being destroyed. With a talent like mine, says the Doctor, I might have been a great slow bowler. The bouncing TARDIS clearly makes sense in terms of a spinning cricket ball on cricket bat, but I suspect the real-life science is shakier than, I don't know, Brian Lara's knowledge of Gallifreyan continuity. And so it should be. But this sort of humour, which producer John Nathan Turner would soon dismiss as being undergraduate, is a typical interlude under the script editorship of mighty comic mind Douglas Adams. And whilst these podcasts will generally confine themselves only to TV episodes, as we have raised the spectre of Adams in a scripting context, it is worth an aside to make space for Doctor Who and the Cricket Men, a never-produced script by Adams featuring white, club-carrying alien robots, the Cricket Men, with a K, well, several, well, three, but let's not get alarmed, the Cricket Men, having failed to secure a commission to appear in TV's Doctor Who, crop up in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book, Life, the Universe and Everything. Uh, the wheeze with the cricket men is that their design subconsciously inspired the look of the sport. If the fourth Doctor was a bowler, it's a skill he retains in at least one of his most recent incarnations. As if to prove that bowling is where it is at for the Doctor, even when he doesn't know he is the Doctor, posing as a human teacher called John Smith in order to hide from himself and a group of marauding alien would-be assassins in the story Human Nature, he nonetheless pulls off an extremely nifty bowling manoeuvre which sets off a chain reaction of objects knocking into each other in order to stop a piano crushing a baby. A sort of infanticide avoidance version of the board game Mousetrap, a great egg race with a slice of unscathed infant added to the list of ideal outcomes, as you do. Paul Cornell, who wrote Human Nature, is a great big cricket fan, and in fact this broadcaster has for several years played in the Telegraph Fantasy Cricket League with Mr Cornell and a number of like-minded individuals, some from the world of Doctor Who and some not, 
including the editor of The Cricketer magazine, and so a man who knows equal amounts about both Tobias and Michael Vaughan. After winning trophies in both of my first two attempts, my form then seriously slipped and will now never be regained as the Telegraph League has ceased to operate as of 2020, causing a great hole to appear in the summers of people like me who desperately need things to use as an excuse to start work today quite yet. What I don't have now is a decent excuse for bringing this innings to an end. Neither rain nor bad light has stopped play, although, you know, if you want to spend the afternoon watching one of the Cushing Dalek movies, then you can. That's one of the freedoms of the brave new world of home media. But these podcasts were supposed to be self-contained. They were supposed to be brief spells of indefinable magic too, but this ramble has clearly gone on many tangents, and I've explored pretty much every one without even, yet, getting to the Doctor Who story that contains more cricket than any other. That story, Black Orchid, was the first two-part story in ages. So maybe it's appropriate that it constitutes part of the first ever two-part edition of this podcast. So I'm going to declare right now, this cricketing history of Doctor Who will continue next time and we'll talk about Black Orchid and the fact that what purports to be a purely historical story might in fact have an alien spy in it. It is surely Doctor Who's finest hour in cricketing terms, so it will be analysed with a hawk eye and with ultra edge, and I'll also be taking a look at which Who luminaries have excelled with leather and willow. That's cricket ball and cricket bat, by the way, not Alison Hannigan in a Buffy alternate universe episode. Both on and off the cricketing field. But for now, that stumps, and I hope you've enjoyed Part one of my test match special. Toby, you've written a joke that can only be understood by people who know about cricket and specific episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, just in case you were wondering precisely how niche you are. Yeah, all right. Thanks, Live at the Apollo. Do you know what, though? I'm very proud of that joke. Thank you for listening to Indefinable Magic. This week's episode was entitled, It's Not Cricket. Well, it is. In fact, it's pretty much all it was, actually. Episode 1. Doctor Who and the Cricket Men has been adapted by James Goss and is available in both book and audiobook from all the places that you get those things from. Test Match Special is still available as a podcast with plenty of history on there too. A beacon flashing on BBC Sounds as well as live when cricket scheduling and rain decide not to short out the time differential and try to coexist at the same time. Indefinable Magic is written by me, Toby Haydoke, and the music for this podcast was specially composed by Dominic Glynn. Next episode, it's not cricket, it is the second innings, or episode. I'm deliberately vague with the episode titles just to annoy historians of the future. Yes, I know historians of the future won't be paying any attention to this podcast, but I like to keep myself amused. (laughs) 
If you enjoy this stuff, you can support me on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Toby which has different tiers and can unlock bonus or early material. But generally, it's a pay what you can, pay what you want model. You are charged straight away, though, after I had people joining, not paying anything and then leaving before the money went out of their account. But the first payment can be as little as £3 and there's plenty of stuff to unlock there as soon as you do that. Now, if you can't do the monthly commitment, I totally understand times are tight all this stuff goes out eventually anyway but you could if you wanted to buy me a coffee by going to ko-fi.com forward slash toby if you're a feeling sorry for me or b feeling flush today or c feeling a bit of both anyway that's enough of that i hope i've made your day a little better or more interesting than it was half an hour ago until next time i attempt to do that stay safe and well and happy times and places to you and yours ta-ta you can also check out my youtube channel and i've recently started a facebook page that you can just like uh, which will have all information about my comedy and doctor who sort of work posted there talking of comedy i'm on twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey every tuesday night at 8 p.m gmt emceeing four of the best comedians from the international comedy circuit i usually mention doctor who in some sort of outburst of fury <laughs> or uh, arcane reference um there'll probably be something in there that you like it's good fun it's an award-winning comedy club that i've run for the past 24 years if not uh well look thanks for listening to this do please spread the word on social media say nice things wherever you can a five-star review is really really helpful on all of those podcast outlets it really just makes my algorithms just look hot and i want the hottest algorithms known to man woman and beast if you do decide to become a patron uh, you qualify to get a mention on some of these podcasts so let me thank and talk about uh, people who've become a patron in the past couple of months or so they are david Brody, richard chalk charles coffin rosser mcphillips Justin E. Monaghan, Dave Owen, Peter Reed, Mark Dakin, Barry Platt, Daryl McLean, Andrew Llewellyn, Sabrina Tirabassi, Kit Allen, William Keith, Peter Harness, Matt Newton, Clive Lewis, Richie, Phil Chapman, Thomas Banks, Richard Alt, Alex Rohan, Paul Carnahan, Jacob Lumley, John Pettigrew, Matthew Kilburn, Phil Pascoe, and Matt Sawyer. As I say, sincere thanks to them and to all of the other patrons who will get mentioned elsewhere and with equal gratitude. I think I'll be quiet now.